have you understood all this? They answered, yes. <laughs> I was talking to Father Chris about this, and he said, you know, there's no punctuation in, in the, the Greek for, <laughs> for these texts. And he said, I have to imagine that it wasn't yes, but it was yes. And I mean, a couple of things. They're either lying, which is, is the most comforting one, right? That they just heard all of this, and Jesus goes, do you understand? They go, yes. Um, I have to believe that they're not telling the truth because the more dangerous possibility is that they think they're telling the truth. So either they're lying, which is more hopeful, or they think they're telling the truth, which is troubling. But any way you cut it, there's no way that these hearers of these parables understood what's going on any better than you do. <laughs> so all of that pressure relieved we can kind of wade into them. If you've been at Sanctuary for a while now, you know that we follow what's called the lectionary. It's this three-year cycle of prescribed readings from the scriptures that basically give us, if you stick with it for those, those three years, that basically give us a full arc of the text over those three years. It includes a text from the Old Testament. It includes a psalm that's read in response to the Old Testament text. It includes a New Testament text, which is usually one of the epistles, and then a story from the gospel. Today, our Old Testament text comes from Genesis 29, and surprise, surprise, it's not a text that I would have picked to preach for myself, but so goes the lectionary. Here it is. This is Genesis 29, beginning in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? This is an act of kindness on Laban's part. He's going, you shouldn't work for nothing. Let me pay you. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, the younger, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Remember the story of Isaac and Jacob. Jacob deceives Isaac out of his birthright. So this is kind of Laban's like little poke at like, hey, we don't do that here. We do things, we do things right. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other daughter also in return for serving me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, as a wife. The word of the Lord. 
Uh, I don't usually do this, but upstairs, did you guys get those texts? It's going to be really helpful today to follow some, some quotes and some texts today. So could you check upstairs just in case you didn't see those? Back in it. The word of the Lord. What a strange story. A strange story. And it's made all the more strange by punctuating the fact that this is somehow the word of the Lord. This is God's word to us. And because this story has been handed down through the millennia, and because the people of God have continued to affirm that this word is God's word, we have to believe that somehow in this story, God is revealing God's self. We're supposed to be learning something about who God is and who God is to us through this strange story. What we have to affirm is that just as surely as God reveals himself on top of Mount Sinai or reveals himself in Mary's womb in the incarnation, the triune God is revealing something of himself in this odd and embarrassing and awkwardly erotic story that we have in today's Old Testament text. And that must be true because it otherwise wouldn't have been counted among the canon. You know, it's not like we just were given these texts. We go, okay, I guess these are the ones that we have to deal with. No, throughout the centuries of Christian tradition, they've affirmed this story tells us something about this God that we worship. It's not canon because it illuminates our relationships with one another, but because it reveals us something reveals and shows to us something about who God is, about the nature of God and the character of God and God's posture toward his creation. One of Father Chris's friends, Robert Jensen, says it this way. If we make the Bible a collection of tales about a fanciful other world, it will have no power. And if we make the Bible a source of advice about how to get along in the world, the advice will always prove unsuitable and will again have no power. But we will do one or the other if we do not, with every glance into the book, confess the Christ of Nicaea and Chalcedon, the places where the creeds were established. What scripture opens to us is the mystery of Christ. And our preaching and our teaching and our reading from scripture will have power as and only as the mystery of Christ is at every biblical step what we discover in the Bible and preach and teach and obey. Jensen's saying we have to look for where is the word in the word. Jensen suggesting that what the Christian faith has always affirmed, which is what Jesus says about himself, is that the entirety of the scriptures is about God's self-revelation. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking on the way to Emmaus, and it says that he interpreted to Cleopas and the other disciple all the things about himself in all of the scriptures, beginning with Moses, which is in Genesis, if you're not familiar, and all of the prophets. Jesus is saying all of those stories you know about who God is, those things are about me. 
straight out of the grave, what Jesus wants his followers to know is that this whole story of Israel, all of their scriptures, all of their sacred texts, they are about him. All of it, all of scripture, its purpose, Jesus tells us, is to disclose the father's only son to his beloved. And that's you and that's me. So this strange story about Jacob and Rachel and Laban and Leah, it's not a lesson for practical Christianity. It's not a lesson about working hard to get the things that you really want, even when you meet disappointment in the middle of it all. No, this story, this rom-com was recorded in Israel's scripture and then later included in the Christian Bible because in some way it unveils the true God and what kind of love that God has for his people. And it's astonishing because this story is really a story about a deceiver being deceived. It's about this deceiver finally meeting his match. Jacob, remember, we talked about this already, deceived his father Isaac by using his blindness against him. Here, the darkness is used against Jacob in the same way that Jacob used it against his father. Jacob also deceived his brother by using his own hunger as leverage, <laughs> stealing away his birthright. Again, this is why Laban's comment to Jacob can be heard with a slant. When Jacob asks why he was deceived and why he gave Jacob Leah instead of Rachel, and he responds, I'm not sure how things are done where you're from, but here we do things proper. The one of the Jewish interpretations of this text, this Midrash, expounds on this story. It starts to read between the lines and it says, add some colorful elements, but it says that Jacob on that first night calls to Rachel throughout the night and Leah continues to respond again and again. And then when he questions Leah as to why she responded to the name Rachel, she says, isn't this how your father cried out to Esau? And you answered him? As much as this story, I think, is about the messiness of humanity and how God still works in our lives in spite of our deceitfulness and the multitudes of complexity that are going on in each and every one of us, this story is at its core a story about God's love for God's people. And if that's true, which Jesus says it is, if every text points in some way to himself, to the father's son and their love for their people, then we have to, we have to adjust our lenses a little bit. Jacob is not just Isaac's son and Abraham's grandson. Rachel is not simply the object of Jacob's fierce and urgent desire. The church fathers affirmed this, that the lovers in this meet cute at a well aren't just Jacob and Rachel. That's not who we see when we see this story. But because the risen Christ has said that these scriptures are about him, we don't just see Jacob, we see Jesus. We don't just see Rachel, we see all of humanity. So while we read that the object of Jacob's desire is Rachel, what we should hear is that the object of God's desire is you. You are the reason for God's ridiculous wooing, for God's extravagant and costly patience. You are the reason for God's persistent 
chasing. There is a reason that you feel the way you do when you fall in love with someone. Why you pursue them. You go to great lengths to be close to them and to hear them. Why you stay up late texting, even though you know you have to wake up early. Listen, I was 15 years old when I first met Elizabeth, my wife now. And when I was 15 years old, this was that stage in like cell phones when everyone had one, but you still used it to call people. And so it, it was like texting existed, but it, it cost money, right? So, oh my gosh. So we met and I'm living here. I'm living in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was born and raised. And she's living here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where she was raised. And we've met and like we've been, been captured by one another. And the only way that we had to really communicate was with our cell phones. And this is back when, do you remember you had like, so you, every month you bought minutes and you had like an allotment and that was your plan. But then there were these really magical hours of the week that was like, that was free calling. Do you remember this? It was like after a certain time and like only on certain days, we lived for those days. <laughs> and then we got to a point where our parents, they had to start, figuring out like, okay, what's, what plan are you on? And what, what plan can we put lists on? And, and how do we make all this work? Because they're costing us a fortune. We didn't know this. We didn't know that like sending little text messages back and forth costs money. So one day my dad calls me into his office. And you know, when you're like 15 years old and your dad's like, come to my office, like things aren't about to go well. He's like, sit down. And he has a piece of paper on his desk and it was my phone bill. And he's like, what have you been doing? Just talking to Liz, Dad. Like, what do you mean? And he slides across his desk a bill that was for like $970. Like, I'm seven years working that off as like a 15-year-old kid. But this is what we do, right? There's something when we're falling in love with someone that just, it just lights us on fire. There's reasons for that. It's because, it's because you're on fire, but you're not consumed by it. This is Moses running into the burning bush, remember? This is that moment when there's no other experience in our lives that can consume us in that kind of way. And it turns out it doesn't consume us. It just keeps burning and burning and burning. And we keep finding that we have more to give and more to give. I used to wake up for school in high school and I'd wake up and my phone was still on my face because we'd fallen asleep at night. <laughs> you just do these extravagant things for the people that you love. And here's the thing. This is the only thing that closely approximates God's love for you. How God loves you. This is why in the text, this story of Jacob and Rachel, it's told without an ounce of criticism. It doesn't, it doesn't nitpick Jacob's impulsive, rash behavior. There's no reproach or this message of, well, he didn't really think that through, did he? None of that exists here. No one says that it seems like he's wasting a lot of his time that really could have been spent on doing something more productive. There's none of that. Why? Because his urgency is the point. His desire is the point. God is passionately and madly and endlessly in love with you. 
Plato, the famous philosopher, at one point, he wanted to ban poets and songwriters from his republic because he thought that their ability to arouse emotion and to kindle passion was actually at odds with the virtues. He thought passion was dangerous because it seemed to be the very opposite of prudence and wisdom. In the same way, there were Greek philosophers who thought that the essence of true religion, true humanity, was a detachment from our emotions, that having a kind of cool rationality was the point of all of this. But that is not the God of Israel. The Lord chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not because they were the greatest, certainly not because they had their lives all figured out, not because they had some penchant for covenant making, and definitely not because of their ability to remain faithful. God is the God of Israel because the Lord fell in love with her. Just as God happens in the world, Israel happened to God and God falls in love with her. And that is every bit as foolish and impulsive as the love that Rachel quickens in Jacob. It's foolish because both then and now, the people of God, you and me and us and them, we don't warrant God's steadfast passion. And to top it all off, we aren't even reliably monogamous lovers. We're always chasing falsehoods. We're always chasing counterfeit gods in our lives. But still, God has given us everything. Seven years, Jacob worked for Rachel, but it's not even a blink compared to the eternity that God has been waiting to make this moment a reality so that God can love you. The early church understood this to be the way that God loved Israel. And this new revelation that this is how God now loves the whole world. This is my body. I give it to you. These are Jesus' words at that moment of establishing the Eucharist. Those words of institution, take, eat, this is my body. They recognize that these words of institution, they're simultaneously the words of a lover to his beloved. This is my body. It's an offering of oneself to another. He's not just announcing what is happening. It's an offering that a lover makes to his beloved. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he argues that the love that is shared between human beings, between human lovers, that it pales in comparison to the love and the passion that God has for us. Jason Michelli, a Methodist pastor, says this about it. He says, note what Paul thereby stipulates that according to the logic of analogy, the love shared between human lovers is recognizably passionate only by distant resemblance to a true passion, which is God's alone. Our passion is the copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of which God's passion is the original. Very few of us, he says, would roll away a stone kiss and weep and ask for an I do before we even said hello or got together for drinks. 
Our passion is faint and faded compared to the passion of the triune God. Paul takes it even further than that. He says that true discipleship is marked by this passion, by this love, that to be a disciple looks like loving like this. He says discipleship isn't about climbing a ladder to God, sometimes moving up a rung, sometimes moving back down to. Discipleship isn't about building up righteousness or becoming a better version of yourself. Think about this. Paul doesn't even present discipleship as the path of an apprentice following a master. Paul says discipleship is courtship. I promised you in marriage, he says to the Corinthians, to present you as chaste before Christ. That's discipleship. In Revelation, in John's vision, at the end of all things, it concludes with what? the marriage supper of the lamb. Discipleship isn't about learning or serving or improving. It's about being wooed. It's about being drawn in to the mystery of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So more so than a forgiver or a redeemer, although God is that, more than a shepherd or a sage, even though Jesus is that, more than a sacrifice, although that is what Jesus is, more than our maker or our judge, the Lord God is our lover. God loves us. That is why Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast hidden in the dough. That's why Jesus says that it's like treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl of great value because the kingdom of God is inseparable from the love of God. In fact, we could say that the kingdom of God is where God's love is realized. And all of these parables, Jesus tells us, they're parables of hiddenness, of hiddenness. The way that God's love for us is, is tucked away in our lives, oftentimes in ways that we don't even recognize. God's love is like a seed that's buried in the ground that becomes a sprawling place of shade and rest and respite. But it has to get buried first. It has to end its career as a seed in order to become something else. The yeast of God's love has been sown into the lumpy doughiness of the world in such a way that the two are indistinguishable. They're inseparable from one another. Again, Robert Capon, who we've spent some time with the last few weeks, he says this, it's all too tempting after hearing the seed parables to envision a time, namely before the sowing, when the world was a world without the kingdom in it. He's making the argument that from the very beginning, this is how the world was established. He says that we tend to make a harsh, or have a harsh or a serious view of the Old Testament that makes no sense at all with the words intimate presence to the world as the one by whom all things were and are made. Nevertheless, he says, it's still a temptation. But after hearing the parable of the leaven, he says, there's no choice. For every second of the time that the dough is dough, the yeast is inseparable from it. 
Therefore, for every second of the time, the world has been a world. It has also been the kingdom. That is, it's been the direction of God's love. Its progress through history is not a transition from non-kingdom to kingdom. Rather, it is progress from a kingdom in a mystery to kingdom made manifest. He's saying God's love has been hidden and tucked away in our lives from the foundation of the world. And when we talk about the kingdom of God being already, but not yet, it's here, but it's on its way. It's not saying that there are places or there are times where the kingdom hasn't existed, but only places where it hasn't been realized. And what is it that hasn't been realized? This very simple, but overwhelming fact that God loves us. That God loves us. It's hidden in those everyday, ordinary, throwaway moments of our lives. This morning, I stepped into uh, our daughter Goldie's room. She's two. And like 9.15, she's still sleeping. And we've like opened up windows. We've turned off the noisemaker and she is, she's gone. So I lean over her crib and I'm rubbing her back. And I'm just whispering her name, Goldie. Come on, Shug. I rub her cheek. And just as she starts to stir, I step out of her room. That is the hiddenness of God's love for us. There are moments in our lives and in our days when we feel this kind of stirring that's waking us up. And we don't really see it we don't really fully understand it. All we know is that we are coming to life for some reason. And whatever that moment is, whatever that thing that's happening to you, that's causing you to pay attention, that's causing you to open your eyes, that thing is the love of God. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, by the time we get our eyes open, we don't even realize it. We just found ourselves caught up in it. This is the hiddenness of God's love for us. Our response to that love is not to cast our pearls before swine, but our job in the lives of other people is to just leave little breadcrumbs in people's lives. Breadcrumbs of that love, of the love that we have found so that they can find the pearl of great value. We are people who have found a treasure that's been hidden. And what does that guy do? This doesn't make any sense either. He goes and hides it again. Why? Because he's going to come back to it later. But maybe there's going to be someone else who's going to stroll across that field and find that hidden treasure as well. We are people who are always finding hidden treasure and leaving treasure for other people to find so that their eyes can be opened to the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not with any agenda, not with any strings attached. We are just simply people who have been loved in hidden and unrealized ways, but we have caught a glimpse of the one who has loved us into being. And the invitation that we hear today is to love the world in the same way that God loves us. 
in all of its messy and deceitful, sneaky ways, we find ways to love the world. We love. Amen.